Welcome back, everyone. This is Tom Parrish. Welcome to the show. Up next is a conversation with Art Adams on how to use a color reference card in your productions. Now, I first heard about Art in an article in ProVideoCoalition.com where he talks about the DSC Labs OneShot, which is a color reference card that he developed. Now, you might be wondering why this is all that important. Well, Art actually is a DP and has been for a couple of decades. He has a very clear understanding of how to get the kind of quality you're going for in a production, both in the production as well as the post side. And as a result of this, Art has developed a unique color reference chart that is specifically tuned to digital productions, digital cameras, digital post. And he's going to explain more about how that works and how we can benefit from it, regardless of the size of your group. One man shop, you bet you're going to want to do this. And in getting into this, let's talk a little bit about Art. Art, I know you've been, uh, you're on the West Coast, you're uh, in the San Francisco area, and you've been a been shooting as a DP for 21 years. Give us a little bit of background about yourself. Thanks, Tom. I'm really pleased to be here. I started out, well, let's see. I guess at the age of 12, I decided I wanted to look through mm-hmm. cameras for a living. And then uh, went down to L.A., went to film school at Loyola Marymount, and mm-hmm. got out into the industry and worked on just about every kind of production out there as a ca- uh, camera assistant and then operator. Did a lot of work in low-budget features, worked my way up to some pretty good budget features. Worked on episodic television, some commercials, a lot of music videos, uh, TV movies, which were really big back then. And at some point, kind of decided I, I wasn't really grooving on LA anymore. So I moved back to my native Northern California and kind of fell into the the corporate and commercial market, which is uh, where I am now, mostly commercials. Yeah. But that background of film has just been invaluable because even though film is going away, there's a lot of uh, knowledge. I mean, it, film was around for a hundred years, and we learned a considerable amount about how to produce motion pictures of all sorts over that period of time. And a lot of this information is, is slowly being lost, including the use of uh, color reference charts in you know, trying to uh, create a consistent look across multiple days of dailies and giving you know colorists an opportunity to. Uh, you know, to dig themselves out of situations where we may shoot under a, a very strange light source or uh, in open shade with lots of blue or, you know, lots of different environments where uh, if we have something in the shot and they know what that is, then they can kind of solve for that problem and everything else falls into right. place. Right, and that, that brings me to one of the underlying purposes for me wanting to do this interview with you is... Uh, as you said, we're moving away from the film days, but you bring some extremely valuable insights as to how to use these color charts. You're referencing these particular situations that happens during dailies and all the money that's being involved in the shoot. But today, the reason someone ought to be listening to this right now is an independent filmmaker or you know, doing these five, ten, and $15,000 jobs in whatever regional area of the United States you're at. As a colorist, you know, I am uh, continually surprised <laughs> at what I get brought that's basically had a problem due to lighting because they were working fast, under budget. They had two cameras. They didn't even think about trying to, uh, 
you know, get the two cameras uh, set up. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah. that just doesn't even consider. And in this sort of run and gun, get things done uh, approach to these lower cost budget things, you you either pay for it in quality in the end because you don't know how to fix that yourself as an editor, or you have to pay for it for the colorist at the end some way or another in order to get things at least close. And, and I, you know, it's like, okay, how do we get to the root of this problem? And I think there's some education here that you could bring forward for us on this. So you created your own color chart with, uh, with DSC. How, how, did, how did that come about exactly? Well, it's funny. I, uh, I, I first really discovered DSC Labs. Well, Back in early in my career, um, I would occasionally work on uh, multi-camera projects, uh, you know, three or four video cameras, and uh, yeah, I'd, I'd see at the end, the beginning of the day, that I'd always have an engineer lining up the cameras to a chart, and the chart was initially a grayscale chart, and then it became the Chroma Dumont, which is uh, <laughs> DSC Labs' best-selling uh, chart. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm also lucky that in the Bay Area we have a culture, or we had a culture, where there was always a video engineer on the set. Because oh. most of the most of the the video engineers were also sound people. They started out in rental houses, and the rental houses realized that if they trained up their people both as sound people and video engineers, they could send them out twice as often and make more money. Oh, I always wondered about that. Yeah, it was an interesting, uh, interesting trick. I don't, I don't really know of any other market. I've, I'm told that Minneapolis did something similar. What a valuable person that ended up being, though. Well, yeah, because when I would go out and just shoot talking head corporate interviews, my sound guy would also be painting the camera, <laughs> which was brilliant. And then I would lean over and, well, I shouldn't say sound guy because sound person. Yes, cause, you never know. But yeah, oh yeah, we we've got some, yeah. yeah. I got it. great video engineers who are women as well right. out here, so I, I don't want to say that. Um, I would always just sort of lean back and look over, you know, look over their shoulder and kind of go, "What are you doing?" <laughs> you know, and I could see them manually white balancing and adjusting the detail and doing all this other stuff that you do in video. Right. It was a really interesting education, and what happened was, I gradually came to understand that by looking at these charts, I could understand what a camera was doing that maybe the manufacturer didn't want me to know about. And this kind of came to a head with the red camera. When that camera came out, uh, when the red one came out, it was so different from anything else. And I wanted to find out why. And it was really interesting because I could see this camera being built in front of me. You know, the the, the hardware came out almost completely different. But the software wasn't. And it was really interesting to see, you know, one build the camera did, you know, weird things, highlights would change color, you know, when they clipped, depending on whether you're shooting under daylight or tungsten or something like that. And, uh, you know, then the next software build, that would go away. Wow, that's really interesting. So I started looking at color charts, the Chroma Dumont chart with this camera and trying to figure out certain things, like the red is more color accurate under daylight than it is under tungsten. And uh, I discovered that by looking at you know, basically this chart and saying, I know how this chart is supposed to look on a vector scope. Here is the way it, the colors look in daylight. Here's the way they look in tungsten. Oh, they're different. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, oh, the, the blue channel seems to be seeing some green under tungsten light, which is kind of interesting. You know, so, I, so by knowing what I was shooting mm-hmm. and knowing how that was supposed to look and where that was supposed to fall on a waveform monitor and a vector scope, I could see when the camera was doing stuff that 
in theory, it wasn't supposed to be able to Got do, it. or it wasn't supposed to do. And the trick is, what I since discovered is that all cameras do this to some extent. Yeah. And it's really valuable to know what their quirks are because they all have their secret sauce. They all have their their hidden color science. You know what they think makes their cameras look best. And sometimes they're just working around a design they just had for a long time, <laughs> trying to squeeze more out of it. Mm-hmm. And and having this known reference, you know, and knowing what it's supposed to look like, and then seeing what it really looks like is hugely valuable. Uh, so, anyways, I uh, I wrote a number of articles about doing this, and DSC Labs noticed me and uh, asked me to uh, consult for them on some new charts. And I started doing training for them at uh, at uh, NAB. Uh-huh. Uh, so, you know, because yeah, you know, with with cameras like the Red now, where everyone's grading in in post. Mm-hmm. Uh, a certain amount of this knowledge is kind of drifting away, and uh, it's still hugely valuable. I mean, just because, Absolutely. yeah, or just because you're grading in post doesn't mean. You know, one of the one of the problems is, you know, you want to make sure that what you shoot on the set shows up the way you want it in post. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, with with cameras that record in log and raw, there's so much leeway. It's the same thing with film. We ran into this one. You know, there's so much information on film that someone can take it into a color grading suite and turn it into Almost anything they want. Uh, and that is not always right. what a cinematographer wants. Right. And like I said, on these smaller jobs, you basically end up baking in a problem that has to be either lived with or solved or, worst case, reshot. And, and that's just not going to happen on those budgets. Right. And, you know, like I said, you know, we used to have video engineers on set. We used to have color accurate monitors and paint box and we'd tent them all in and they'd get in there and they'd paint and, you know, they could watch the, the CRT. You know, CRTs are just incredibly, you know, precise and accurate tools. Right. They have the waveform monitor and the vector scope. When the red came out, all that went away because it was all being done in post. And now people are starting to come back to what you see is what you get production because there are cameras that compete with the red in at the same price point but they give you the option of a much easier post workflow yeah. and people are kind of going well you know budgets are a little tight now i don't really want to grade raw i don't want to deal with the massive amounts of data that i see right. in raw i want to shoot it and then do minimal to no color correction and then you know put it on the air or put it on the web or or whatever mm-hmm. The problem is we don't have CRT monitors anymore, and L- and LCD monitors are there are some that are more accurate than right. others. Uh, there there are very few that are tremendously accurate. OLED monitors are amazing, but they have shiny surfaces, which Reflect. actually yeah right right, and that's instrumental to making the contrast as high as it is. You can't get a deep, rich black without a glossy surface. Right. Which okay, that's great, but it makes them a little hard to use. Yeah, outside. So we're in a we're in a situation where we're shooting stuff that it's gonna go whatever we shoot is probably gonna be the way it looks, <laughs> but we don't have a way to see what that is. So at at least, you know, one of the reasons I helped develop this chart is to try to give someone a reference somewhere. So even if you're not doing a full on color grade, you can see if something's wrong and then very quickly kind of go eh, tweak, tweak, tweak. Okay, done. Looks much yeah. better. Yeah, and worst case, at least you can, if you've captured some of that at the beginning of each one of your scenes, um, then you can at least convey to the colorist, this is what we think is going on. Otherwise, he's got to decode it from himself 
Right, and, and that's not that's good. not that's good. Not, well, that's not, and that's not fair, really. So, so you know, I get that you know our eyes are really easily fooled is kind of an, uh, another way of saying some of the things you're mentioning there. That's why you had all that gear and those people on 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 deck there. Why did you create this particular chart with this particular color swatches? Because it's it's uniquely different. Yeah, it's so. What what is what's going on is. In the film days, we, we had gray cards, Kodak 18% gray cards. And you could just sort of, you could stick that in front of the camera, take a spot meter reading, you know, look at whatever that stop was, put it on the lens, roll a couple of frames. And that was enough for a color timer to line up the red, green, and blue, you know, emulsion layers, line them up uh, with the, their, their own printer lights. And make that gray card perfectly neutral because he, he knew or she knew that that card was a neutral gray reference and they knew how to make that right. neutral gray you know in the print um the reason that works so well is because all the color science is baked into the film stock you know you're not going to change it unless you change the processing and if you're going to change the processing then you've probably done some testing hopefully and you know what's going to happen if you shoot a gray card in video all that does is show you white balance if you zoom in on that gray card and then go into the user matrix, which is the one that says, you know, R minus G, B minus G, you know, it's, a, it's a, a, a way to fundamentally affect how the camera responds to color. And it's where you get, you know, if you get looks from Able City or, you know, different places, you know, different companies will create looks that you can load into your cameras. They're doing a lot in there. And that's probably 90% of what they're doing. You can throw in just crazy, crazy, crazy numbers into that while looking at this gray card, and the gray card won't change. Zoom out, and every color around it will be completely whacked. Because anything that falls near a neutral color, black, gray, white, anything that falls along that line, the matrix doesn't affect, but it affects everything else dramatically. So because the color science isn't, you know, it's not as firmly baked in um, without having color in there that you can recognize. You don't really have any idea of what's going on. And the matrix can be completely screwed up. You shoot a gray card and it's not going to help the colors because then they're going to say, why are the flesh tones yellow? <laughs> and, you know, the blue things are green. Right. And, you know, they can't get back. <clears throat> so the reason the card works this way, it's, it's kind of the same way the Chroma Dumont works. It's just a simpler version. The colors on the Chroma Dumont mean specific things. I, I'm hoping your viewers have seen the CIE 1931 color space. Well, I think people probably all heard about it, and I don't know about some of the indie guys if they care a whole lot, but I'm sure they've heard about it. Yeah, so it basically kind of looks like a pyramid with a rounded yeah. top. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, each corner is a different color. You know, one the, the two bottom corners are uh, blue and red. Uh -huh and the top is green and basically what this is is it's it's a it's a pyramid that represents all the colors that humans can see and the way you define a color space is by picking three colors within that and you know any color you can mix between those colors is your color space color space basically says these are the richest, most saturated colors that a certain system can reproduce, mm -hmm. period. Right. You can't get anything outside of that. Um, so the, the HDTV world is governed by this thing called 
REC 709 or ITU 709. It's a standard, and it says if you make your cameras uh, work within this standard, and if you make monitors work within this standard, then what you shoot on the camera should look right on the monitor. Right. And the primary colors that they use are very specific. You know, they are there. It's not just red, green, and blue. It's a very specific red, a very specific oh, green, a very specific blue. Yep, and there's there's physics behind this, where you can actually take a spectrometer and you know look at different dyes and inks and dial in a color patch that is exactly yeah. <laughs> the specification in Rec. Seven Hundred Nine. Now the trick is one of the tricks is you can't reproduce a color that is as saturated as it needs to be to be a primary you know, on, in HDTV. Because if you look at color bars, they're just hugely saturated. You know, the very, very, you know, richly colorful. And you can't print colors that are that bright because you just, there just aren't inks that will do mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the Chroma Dumont and the OneShot, which is the, the chart that I helped design, uh, uses colors that are half that saturated. So what you would do is you would, you know, hit the times two button on your vector scope to kind of zoom in a little bit. But basically, they're the three primary colors, red, green, and blue. And they are specific primary colors designed to be exactly what, um, how to describe this. If you shoot the card and look at it on a vector scope, the red, green, and blue patches should fall directly in line with the red, green, and blue boxes on the vector right. scope. And then the yellow cyan and magenta should line up patches should do exactly the same thing. The background is 18% gray, mm -hmm. which helps you uh, set exposure because saturation changes with exposure. Yeah. And usually, I, the te technically, that belongs at 41.7 IRE. I round it off to 40. So if you expose the chart at 40 IRE, you've got an exposure reference. You've got a white and a black reference, which are handy. They're not always, you know, super accurate these days because with the dynamic range of cameras being what it is, you know, that white is going to land at different spots on different cameras. On a on a C300, it'll line up. You know, it'll probably go to you know 80 or 90 units. On an Alexa, it'll go to 60 units. Mm -hmm. So it's a a good reference to have, but it's not as important as it used mm -hmm. to be. The, the 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 keys are. The primary and secondary colors, but also also flesh tone. Flesh tone, there are, right? Okay. There are four flesh tone patches on that's there. What, that's what. That's part of what's uniquely different in your your one shot card. Yeah, I mean, your flesh tone is just hugely. I mean, that's what. If you talk to any colorist, colors. I mean, mm -hmm. you can confirm this, but colorists are always looking for flesh right. tone. And what when I talk to colorists, they say, you know, if you're going to shoot a gray card, shoot you know flesh tone in there at the same time. And then often they'll ignore the gray card and make the flesh tone look really good, which is great but because the gray card doesn't really tell you all that much. But if you have the flesh tone patches, and these flesh tone patches are the same on every card, yeah. you wouldn't believe the quality control that goes into these things. There's a line between uh, red and green on the vector scope, yeah. and those flesh tones should fall on that line. Uh -huh. So basically you've got this card that if you, you photograph it and look at it on, on a vector scope, you know where everything is supposed to go. It, it, it's all marked out for you. Yeah, you know? yeah. if, if you, if you, you know, connect the dots, then you have accurate color. Wow. Well, let's see. So let's get... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I, and actually, I should say why, like, for example, a lot of people shoot Macbeth charts. Yeah, right, right. That, that's a big popular... I don't know how good that is, but... 
Well, you know, they're they're great for certain things, but they're designed for print. Yeah, they're not designed for video. And if you look at them on a vectorscope, it, it just looks like a dartboard. You know, it's, it's just oh, a bunch of dots. Good point. They they don't mean anything. They mean something to a printer, and they mean to mean something to someone who's working in Photoshop or After Effects, because each of those colors has an RGB value and all that. But in video, where we're looking at a waveform monitor and a vectorscope, it's just completely pointless. A colorist, you know, colorists don't know what to do with them. Typically, they'll look at the bottom row, which has the the white, black, and gray, and they'll use those for white balance, and then, you know, that that's it. Um, I see. I see. Kind of how this all ties together, because like you said, you for years have been looking over your shoulder at how the guys get things lined up on their side from a video pointer perspective, and in this card is just kind of like a, an accumulation of all of your knowledge. Let's talk about practically speaking. Let's say I'm not overly concerned about all the details of how it works. I've I've bought a card. I'm using it. You know, as a colorist, I'm having my uh, you know in the shop the guys doing the sh doing the shooting. I'm giving them the card. Or if I'm an independent and I just want to incorporate this in to my shots because I know I'm going to be handing to a colorist eventually. What's the best pragmatic way to 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 shoot the card and sort of incorporate it into the workflow well so typically what uh, I do is at the beginning of a, a new scene or new lighting setup yeah. I'll typically shoot one of these things there's two ways you can shoot it one is you can kind of make it independent of the scene mm -hmm. and you can uh, light it separately you know and typically you would use two lights, one from either side at 45 degree angles to make it perfectly even. This isn't always possible, but this is an ideal way to do it because then it's, it's just, you know, it's perfectly evenly lit. There's no question as to what, you know, uh, you know, whether one side of the chart is darker or brighter than the other. The more realistic way to shoot it is you go into some neutral light on the set and uh, you shoot it there. Uh, and when I say neutral light, it could be, you know, whatever the, the main light is that um, you want to appear neutral. Now, it could be that you're shooting in a, a, a building and with a, a view looking out onto a bunch of, you know, skyscrapers or a building next door. And the sun is hitting the building next door and then bouncing into the room you're shooting in. Oh, yeah. A lot of times that, a lot of times that, <laughs> Anytime you bounce light or diffuse light, it changes the color because even if, yeah, it depends on, on what color the surfaces you're bouncing off of. But also, um, there's a, a scattering effect. I'm not going to get into the physics of it because I'm just going to make a fool of myself trying to explain it. But basically, the light warms up a little bit every time you, you bounce okay. it or diffuse I it. I never thought about that, but that uh, makes sense, actually. Wavelengths yeah, get longer, maybe they become a little more red as a result of it or something. Right, yeah. The shorter wavelengths get a little get a little scattered or they get they get held back. Um and then if also you don't know what what color this that building across the street right, really right, is. Right. So if you shoot the chart in the light the bounce light off that building, then immediately the colorist can can see the color shift and and neutralize it. Mm -hmm. Because they look at all the little dots on the vectorscope and see they're all pushed over towards, you know, yellow mm -hmm. and they can go okay pull them on back and make them perfectly neutral perfect so so that's that's one way to do it, it you know to fix color shifts on location and make sure that your dailies are perfectly neutral the other thing is to communicate with a colorist and say i know what i'm doing looks crazy but it's what i want and what i used to do um, a lot of times when i was shooting film is i would shoot uh, a reference 
full frame, and then I'd pull back and show the card in a corner of the frame um, with the set in the background lit the way I want it, and, but with the card, or the card at the same exposure. And then that way, I'm kind of saying to the colorist, here's the card lit the way you know, I, I want it. I'm telling you exposure and color information, mm -hmm. and then saying, and now here's a wider shot with the card looking the same and the background looking dark and moody and blue. I'm saying that's okay. That's that's what I want. Mm. Uh, and then that way they don't try to help you because you know colorists want to make you look good. And sometimes when they get something coming in that they don't understand, they kind of go, "Well, all right, I, I don't want this DP to get fired or something." So I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to make this look good and or, or try to you know massage this back a bit. Uh, and sometimes, you know, you, you don't want to do that. And then, you know, not only are you covering yourself to, you know, say that, you know, this is the look I want, but then the colorist gets, you know, a reference that when someone comes to them and says, why, are, why is it so dark? They can say, well, but this is what the, the DP what asked wanted. for. Yeah, don't, don't correct it back the other way. <laughs> right. Now, the, the realistic way that you would use this when you go into a lighting setup, you throw the card out there in a neutral light source, mm -hmm. and you, you shoot it, you roll off a couple frames, and you get it out of the way. Right. Uh, if you're shooting multiple cameras, then you, you typically want to get the cameras lined up as close to each other as they can because there is a little glare off the card. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one of the reasons most of DSC Labs charts are glossy, and this one flat. isn't. Yeah, yours is flat. It's Right. And it was tough to get them to make that because the, the mat is actually <laughs> less accurate. Because if you have a glossy surface, not only are you, can you make colors richer and blacks darker, uh -huh. but you can see when you're getting flare and you can get rid of the flare. Oh, got it. Right, right. It, but, you know, a lot of people who are shooting, you know, indie features or TV shows, you know, you don't have, you don't have time to go and flag that all off. You just you want a mat chart and there's still going to be some flare off the chart. But you can kind of see it. It's it's good enough. You know, it's fine. But you, you do want to get the cameras as close together, shoot the chart at the same exposure on both cameras, and then that way the colorist can get like 90% of the way there mm. to matching the cameras very, very quickly. The colorist is always going to have to do the last 10% by eye, but at least that first 90% can just go like a snap. All right. So if you got two cameras there, you got three, get them all together for... For that, it depends on how many cameras you're using in the shoot, I suppose. But get them together, more or less the same location. Fill the frame, both front and back of the card, for a moment or two. Yeah, the, the back of the card is is less important as far as shooting. That's more for white gray balancing. Well, yeah, but I figured if you had it, you might as well, you know. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. More information is always right, better. right. But yeah, if you're before you shoot the chart, it's a good idea to white balance. Even if you're just, you know, if the white balance is metadata, at least it's a good starting right. point for the colorist. Right. And the white and gray are, you know, dead on. They're both 16 by nine, so you can shoot them full frame. Some some cameras like to see white. Some cameras like to see gray, and that's why those are there. Is it uh, so, so? There's two two size cards. Uh, there's a little one, and then there's a little bit bigger one. And what, why the difference in sizes? And does it matter which one you use? Mainly to you know, the the one shot, the large one is I think it's two seventy something. Yeah, two eighty. Which, like yeah, yeah, which is actually a really good deal for what it gives you. Yeah. But for people who are on real budgets, um, Simpty is distributing the smaller oh. version. You can get the the big one shot through DSC Labs, mm -hmm. and I think they're at B and H now. Okay. The smaller ones you can get through Simpty. The smaller ones are 
just the thing is just as accurate. They're just smaller. And one of the, the things is, um, you know, they're they're cheaper to print, so cheaper to sell. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a little harder to get them full frame. Right. That's a little less important than it used to be because we can zoom in right. in post. Right. So it is better to have the bigger card if you're doing multiple cameras because trying to get two or three cameras side by side close enough to shoot the small card full frame <laughs> is going to be a little bit right. difficult. But, that uh, makes sense. But yeah, but they, they do essentially base this, the same thing. Okay, so here's a philosophical question just listening to your story, which is really fascinating because I don't have that background um, that you were talking about with regards to the, the film days, for instance, and and that's fine. I don't have an issue with that at all. In fact, that's part of what I'm doing in the series of interviews I've been doing is, I mean, when I, I mean, I look as a colorist, which I've been a colorist for the last four years, and the kinds of things that people bring me in this in this marketplace, nobody's ever shot color. Now, then, not one person has come in my studio has shot uh, film. Um, and I mean, I mean, I would say ninety percent of them are shot on five D and seventy. You know, occasionally it's RE, occasionally it's red. Uh, but on the red, I mean, this guy brought me this this whole incredible antique car thing, and uh, he'd hired a DPE out of L.A. It was supposed to be the best guy around, you know, and shot red. But the guy didn't set the camera up right, in the first ten minutes, everything was yellow. Yeah. And uh, and then they and then he spent like two days after they brought it back uh, converting it all to ProRes, and then they wanted me to fix the yellow. But at, at oh, that wow. point, they baked it in, you know. Right. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, it just keeps coming up to me that. It's not that anybody's wrong. It's just that there's a big gap in 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 learning as we've as this sudden evolution where people have lurched forward and gone to the lower cost cameras, which do amazing things, uh, and creativity is flowing, and lots of wonderful things are happening. There's more competition in the market and all that kind of stuff. But uh, unless uh, someone had gone to film school and become a DP just for that purpose, then there's most of the stuff you get looks like it was shot by people that don't know. You know, and I'm kind of curious, though, do you have a sense, you know, history goes around and uh, repeats itself in the old days, if you want to call it that you you had a kind of relationship with the crew in some way that was that had an impact on the color and the balance, color balance and and, and, and the lighting. And, and that that really imp- impacted the end result. Uh, but in the old days, when it came to color, once it was all done, you gave it to the you know the film. It got converted. It gave it to the colorist, and you may or may not have even talked to the colorist after that. It seems like these days, with everything being all digital, there's an opportunity for the DP and the colorist to be working hand in hand very early on in the production process. Yeah, ideally, that's the way it works. I think relationship with a colorist is is hugely important. You know, not only to, I mean one of the things you want to do is have the colorist as your ally mm-hmm. because if the <laughs> Well, if, you know, colorists are getting paid by the producer, right? And you know, and then the director, of course, is the ultimate boss. So if you can get, if you can build a relationship with the colorist, you get them on your side, make them a partner. You know, and that's what I do with with my crews. You know, as the director of photography, my philosophy is I'm 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 not necessarily the sole author of the image. I'm kind of, I'm more of the gatekeeper. Oh yeah. I do have a lot of control over the look, but my key people, like my my gaffer and my key grip. And sometimes my camera assistant operators are working with me. If they have ideas, I'm the one who kind of decides whether those ideas work. You know, and if they do, then great, right. let's do them because we're all, you know, we all do better work together. I think than you know that we would entirely on our on our own. And that's not always the case. And what you like to do is build, you know, relationships with crew people over time who 
get you to understand what you want, and you also have to be able to communicate to them what you want. So that if they do something like you, you say your gaffer, here's what I want in the foreground, do something nice to the background because I got to go look at the next set. When you come back, they've done something that you like, you know, <laughs> and they, they get to know what your taste is. But, and then you can trust them to do something that will work and you don't have to tell them, dial them in on absolutely everything. Right. And I think the same thing is with a, uh, with a colorist. You want to tell them what you want. You don't want to restrict them completely. We all get into this business because we want to create and I think the more you let people do that and become a part of the process the more dialed in they are and the more they'll be on your side yeah yeah so if if I shoot a color chart and say you know here's a reference but here's the look I'm going for you know do do something nice along these lines and uh, yeah and actually you know I used to back in the film days I used to just turn the slate around and I'd, I'd write notes to the colorist <laughs> Oh, that's great. And I and I just shoot it on the back of the slate because they would see it. And it only you know you only need like three frames. I mean, you, know, or you only really need one frame, but you just you know roll it really quick. And you know the problem is these days um, all that stuff gets cut off. Right, right. Well, yeah. So the yeah. two points I wanted to make along that line is on the on the smaller indie production side where they'd be you're doing you know a spot or a web piece or anything is there's still an advantage for you. Um, given that you've got this issue of there's a lot of competition out there for the for the kind of work you're doing at that particular level at five, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollar projects, having a beginning to develop a relationship with a colorist, uh, either as a friend or come over into the studio and see what they're doing, take a look at what your stuff looks like when it's shot, you know, be a part of that process. Um, the, a colorist can can impact the quality of what you're trying to shoot. And then when you bring it to them, even more that can be done. Kind of like the guy with the red stuff, you know, like, hey, you know, if you'd just talked to me before you'd spent three days doing all the, uh, in transcoding, oh, I could have saved you some time. I mean, in fact, I could have just clicked a little button and the whole thing would have color, changed the, uh, you know, the, the, the color temperature and it would have been fine for those clips, you know. Yeah, you know, this the the way I work with colors is kind of the way I work with my camera assistants. <laughs> you know, whenever I can, that's true. Whenever whenever I can, I like to you know I, I try never to shoot wider than t two eight. When I was a camera assistant working on episodic television shows, and I most often ended up I was on B camera, and B camera always gets the long lens shots. Yeah, <laughs> I, I learned that if I had a, a T four to shoot at. I could nail almost anything. <laughs> you know, at, at T4, folk, you know, that gave me a really good fighting chance. 2.8, you know, got to pay attention, but, you know, not too bad. T2, eh, that's too really starts getting really dicey. 1.4, uh, forget it. You know, that's really, really tough stuff. And we didn't have focus monitors back oh. then or any, any of that stuff. So, you know, we're just doing it by eye and then going to dailies and going, oh, God, I hope I got that. <laughs> uh, you know, and... So, and, and these days, you know, especially now that we're starting to shoot 4K. Right. You don't have any 4K monitors on the set, and the assistant's working off a tiny monitor, so they, they still have to know that gut thing, you know, did I get it or did I not? And the less stress you put on them by giving them a decent stop, the more they're going to be focused and ready to go when it comes up at the end of the day. And you need to do that. You end up shooting at a 1.4 or a 2, and they need to come through. You haven't burnt them out all day long doing that stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the same thing you know, with a colorist. You know, if you can you know, shoot a reference that the colorist can very quickly dial in, 
they can spend more time on finessing your look and less time just trying to do damage control. Exactly. And then, and, yeah, and then when you really need something, they have the time and the inclination to go the extra mile and go, well, this guy's always working with me. I am going to go a little bit extra here and take care of this, this one shot where everything's kind of messed up. And, you know, maybe I don't have a, you know, I, they didn't shoot a chart for that because I didn't have enough time. But I, 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 not only do I want to help them because they help me, but I now actually have the extra time to do it because the charts have been saving me so much time. Excellent. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, on, on indie features especially, you know, you really need to be dialed in. I mean, indie features are, it, it's, it's kind of unfortunate that some, some of the people making indie features now haven't come up through the ranks, so they don't know the most efficient ways to it's do things. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. you have to be really efficient on an indie feature. Because <laughs> you, don't, you, don't, you can't afford not to be efficient. Agreed. Well, Art, thank you so much for your time and just your willingness to help and to teach others. It's, you know, it's a great piece to end on there with regards to indies and, and the, the learning gap and the, and, the, and the learning opportunity there more than anything else. Look, for the listeners, how could they uh, stay in touch with you? Do you have a blog and a website? I have a blog at dbinfo.net. Mm -hmm. I have another blog at providiocoalition.com. Okay. And uh, you can find both of those at my DP website, which is artadamsdp.com. Okay. And just as a one fa a quick follow-up, listeners can get these cards. Say again where they can get the two cards because it's two locations and two sizes. Right. Uh, if you go to the SMPTE website, which I believe is smpte.org, mm -hmm. uh, they're selling the small version, mm -hmm. which I believe is uh, seventy something dollars. Right. The larger version is, I think, it's two seventy. That uh, until recently was only available from DSC Labs, uh, dsclabs.com. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe they're now available at B and H uh, Photo in New York as well, and I think they're working on a, a West Coast outlet. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. This has been, this has been a lot of fun.